right, everyone. Thank you for tuning into Honest Defense. Today, I am honored to be joined by Aaron Sebarium. Aaron is a staff writer at the Washington Free Beacon. He's recently focused on the dystopia that is today's college campus, uh, particularly at his alma mater, Yale, and particularly at Yale Law School. If you've been following me, if you've been following what I've been talking about in writing, it's obviously a topic that's interesting to me that I've been ranting a lot about. So I'm excited to have someone who's really an expert on this. So people don't think it's just me upset that I got rejected from Yale. We're going to be talking to a Yale alum who's been writing about this stuff. Uh, I came across Aaron's work first when he wrote uh, an article in Barry Weiss's Substack, Common Sense. He wrote an article called The Takeover of America's Legal System. Aaron, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me. So I just want to start just by giving people a little context. Uh, and I want to read the intro that I think Barry wrote this in the intro to your article on her Substack. Mm-hmm. And for people who don't know, Barry Weiss is a former New York Times columnist. She is, I think she calls herself a left of center moderate. So she's not someone who's conservative, but she left New York Times because she just felt like you know there was no, no healthy discourse going on, that there was really a one-sided biased system at the New York Times when it came to their reporting, and she couldn't do what she wanted to do. She couldn't do honest reporting and honest writing there. Uh, And so she started this Substack that's become big. And so I just want to read quickly the intro that she wrote, just give people a little context. She says, from the start, we have covered the ongoing saga of how America's most important institutions have been transformed by an illiberal ideology and have come to betray their own missions. Medicine, Hollywood, education, the reason we exist is because of the takeover of newspapers like the New York Times. Okay, so we've lost a lot, a whole lot, but at least we haven't lost the law. That's how we comforted ourselves. The law would be the bulwark against this nonsense. The rest we could work on building anew. But what if the country's legal system was changing just like everything else? And this is why, Aaron, I'm I'm so glad to have you on here because a lot of people have been writing about what's been going on in colleges, especially at the undergraduate level, uh, in Hollywood, in education. But the law is really the foundation of our entire system. And there's been relatively little journalism that's been written about what's been going on in the legal system and in law schools. So I'm, I'm so glad that you've taken an interest. Why have you taken an interest in law specifically? Well, as you just said, it is the foundation of everything. Um, you know, we, we live in a, in a, in a constitutional system that is that is predicated not just that not just the the legal system is predicated on a written constitution, but really our our entire sense of national identity arguably is predicated on the rule of law, and that's supposed to be part of what makes America exceptional. That that constitutive of our identity is not just sort of you know peculiar cultural traits, but a but a kind of reverence for law and for a written legal document. Um, and so when you start messing with that foundation, you're really messing not just with um, the law on the sense of narrow constraints on what people can and can't do, but also messing with uh, the very essence of American national identity. Um, you're talking about changing everything. Right. Um, so that's part of why I take an interest in it. And then the other reason, just sort of practically, as, as Barry alludes to, is, you know, a lot of people will argue, and I mean, I think it's a, a reasonable argument that you can use law and say, like, for example, civil rights litigation to kind of push back against the excesses of wokeness, you know, say, well, actually, like the, the you know, white guilt stuff in, you know, third grade classrooms actually violates the Civil Rights Act, and you see the school district and they stop. That's kind of the, the blueprint a lot of conservatives have, have coalesced on. And I mean, I think that that 
that can work, right? The Federalist Society exists. There are conservative legal institutions. Um, it's not a bad idea. But I, I do worry that people are sort of just assuming that law will always be there as a check um, on the really insane stuff. But the reality is the really insane stuff is now in elite law firms and it's in government agencies like the Federal Trade Commission, which has a very important role in regulating the economy and what people can and can't do. Um, and the more legal institutions this stuff captures, makes inroads in, um, the less you can really, I think, credibly rely on law as a, as a bulwark against all this. Um, so yeah, you know, if you're worried about the excesses of wokeness transforming society in other ways, uh, you know, it's gonna it may become harder to to stop that vis-a-vis -vis litigation because uh, the the litigators are all gonna be woke, and the bar association is woke. I mean, the American Bar Association is really woke, uh, and we can get into some of the details of the wokeness in a minute. But like, you know, it's not it's not just Yale Law School and a few kids in like a critical race theory seminar. It's like the mainstream legal institutions who have all bought into this stuff. And that's what I think we're seeing now. The, the subtitle of your article was the kids aren't going to grow out of it. Because that was always the argument is when you saw some of the crazy stuff that was going on the campus, you're like, okay, these are college kids. They're figuring it out. They'll grow out of it when they have to get into the workforce. But that's not true. Is that They're now taking those ideas and moving it into the workforce and moving it into mm. medicine and science and now law. And so but let's, let's backtrack. Let's talk about the most recent event that kind of has caused a lot of people to, to talk about this issue in law. And that's what happened at, at Yale Law School. For people who don't know, Yale Law School is widely considered the number one law school. It's where most Supreme Court justices, I think, have come. I think over half of the recent Supreme Court justices went to Yale Law School. There's a ton of other federal judges that come out of Yale. So people who really shape the law, uh, Yale has an out an outsized mm -hmm. effect on on how our law is, yes. is formed. So it, it's also worth noting um, that. Well, some people will claim that legal academia and professors don't have that much of an effect on the law. You know, eventually ideas being bandied around in law journals do tend to trickle into law. I mean, look at Catherine McKinnon and her arguments about sexual harassment that a lot of those did end up being influential in the construction of, of modern anti-harassment law. Yeah. Um, it, and so even if most articles don't get read and don't really matter, a few will be. And so if a large proportion of those articles are all really insane, right? So that's just like another mechanism. Yeah. It's important to remember that the, and, and I mentioned this in the context of Yale because Yale produces something like, I, I heard the statistic, I don't know where it's from, but it's like something like half of all law professor jobs yeah. go to people who graduated Yale Law School. Yep. Like the legal academic consciousness is so disproportionately shaped by this one institution that like people are like well why does it matter there's only like you know 600 kids there it's like yeah but like you know of of all the like law professors who get jobs in the next like 10 years like you know a third to a half of them are going to have graduated from the school right. so you know yeah it's fine and if, you know, people i think harvard law is maybe more well known more famous but percentage wise mostly you know harvard's much bigger of a school than yale but yeah. percentage wise Yale has such a huge effect. And like you said, it's these professors aren't in an ivory tower that they're 
articles that they write are cited at the Supreme Court and, and, and at federal appeals yeah. courts. These articles make a difference in how our laws shape. So let's talk about what happened. At, you mentioned the Federal Society. Yes. Federal Society is uh, – they have a branch at pretty much every law school. They're a conservative and libertarian organization. But this event that they were having at Yale was a nonpartisan free speech event, I believe – the two speakers were, were uh, both abortion rights or abortion. They're, they're experts on the abortion issue. There was a pro-life person and a pro-abortion person, pro-choice person. Was that well, correct? I mean, I mean, that's not the main thing that was controversial, but okay. yes, it's correct. So, right, so I right. mean, one of the so okay, so one of them works for the Alliance Defending Freedom, which is like a religious liberty nonprofit. And what makes them controversial is they've argued cases about same-sex marriage and about trans stuff. And it's in the context of religious liberty. So, right. you know, it's in the context of like, can states make, you know, laws, uh, you know, I mean, some of the early cases they did that were controversial and they haven't done recently had to do with like states having sodomy bans, you know, right. there was that. But more recently, most of it is like, you know, masterpiece cake shop. Like, do you have to bake the cake for the gay right. couple? I mean, mo most of the recent stuff they've done, I would argue, is not terribly shouldn't be terribly controversial even if you disagree with it you know and i mean they they did something they've done some stuff with like saying that uh european eu member states should be able to um make medical transition a prerequisite for changing your legal gender um which seems like a pretty reasonable like you know okay like a european member state wants to do that you know okay Th that's like the position the adf has taken this somehow gets translated into they support state sanctioned sterilization of trans right. people right so so anyway so so that was like the the speaker who was controversial the one from the alliance defending okay. freedom and then but then they paired her with a woman from um the american humanist association which is obviously a liberal atheist group and the point of the panel was these two nonprofits had been on the same side of a recent Supreme Court case, um, basically about remedies for First Amendment violations. Uh, we don't need to go into the details of the case, but suffice it to say, it was not a very controversial topic. I mean, it, it really and and but the point of it was that these two groups that are on different sides of most issues we're on the same sides of this because it had implications both for religious liberty and for potentially civil rights, including LGBT rights, right? Um, the, the outcome of the Supreme Court case, basically had it gone the other way, it could have made it a lot easier both to stifle free speech and religious liberty and potentially to violate people's civil rights. And so they both joined forces to, to you know, stick up for this principle and then they they won the court case um and it was supposed to be this kind of kumbaya moment of ah we can get like a liberal atheist and a conservative christian to agree on something isn't that wonderful and we can make the law better you know even when we don't agree with each other um and so federalist society hosts this um and 120 or so yale law students uh crowd into the event and, and we know this is my big question. So we know that these were Yale law students that were in the event. It wasn't. It wasn't just random people from the town. No, it wasn't no, no, no. Yeah, was, we know this that was they were Yale law students. Okay. Yeah, this was Yale okay. law students. Yeah, yeah. Um, so again, I mean, these these kids are the the top of the top when it comes to law students. I mean, they had the highest GPAs in college. They yeah, had the highest LSAT scores. And, and there's and there's fewer than and there's like six hundred fifty or so kids at Yale law. So this is about like a sixth of the student body. 
that was protesting and disrupting the event. Um, so anyway, what happens is they, they, for those who don't know, they come in initially when the professor starts trying to introduce the speakers, professors monitoring the panel, the students stand up with signs and start like making noise and kind of heckling. Um, there, the professor tells them basically to be quiet and to grow up um, because they won't be quiet. And then they get louder. She basically gives them a warning. It's like, you know, I'm going to have to, Yale's free speech policies prevent you from disrupting. So I'm going to have to ask you to leave if you're going to continue to make noise. Eventually they do leave, but what they do is they congregate right outside the classroom where this event is taking place and they proceed to stomp, chant, whoop, shout, make all sorts of noise to the point that it is very difficult to hear the panel. And that is a violation of Yale's free speech policies. You can't make noise that that interferes with people's ability to listen to a panel. You're not allowed to do that. Um, so they just directly violated the policy for, for like a long time, for like, you know, I mean, you can hear in audio, you can hear these intermittent like surges. You can hear the chanting constantly, but you can hear these intermittent surges where it just completely drowns out the panelists like for like minutes at a time. You know, this is not just like a one-off disruption. Um, and they're all outside the room. They're blocking the exits. Um, they seem kind of rowdy. A couple of FedSoc people told me that they were kind of jostled as they were leaving. Um, and because of this, uh, the police end up showing up. Uh, it's pretty, the administration called them, although there's some dispute about exactly when they were called and, you know, what they were initially there to do. But long story short, police were definitely called and they end up giving the panelists a escort out of the building. Um, and we have audio where you can hear the police talking to the FedSoc people saying, there's a huge crowd of protesters outside. We have a squad car waiting to take these people to the restaurant. We recommend you exit this way and we're going to escort you to the vehicle. I mean, so it's very clear that they they are there eventually to provide like an armed escort to these yeah. guests. Um, you know, Yale try weren't, but like we have them on audio saying this is what they were there to do. So Yale basically just lied. Um, and uh that and that should give you a sense of how disruptive this was. I mean, I mean, also people on different floors of the law school and like, you know, in in different parts of the building could hear the protest. There was an exam going on, a faculty meeting got disrupted because they couldn't hear themselves talk. I mean, this is how loud it was. This is not so this is not like a minor disruption. Um well, and that's why I, I you know, I yeah. asked you, like, like we know for sure that these were Yale losses because when you I've seen the video, you can watch the video. And they don't, they're, they're not making any kind of intellectual arguments. Yeah, they're, no, they're, no, no. they're, they're, they're not. protesting like any kind of activist would at, at yeah. any kind of, you know, event out on the streets. But these are, these are supposed to be the top of the intellectual heap when it yeah. comes to law. Right. Now, now, so what's scary about this, I actually think, you know, the demonstration's ridiculous, but you can say, okay, so the kids behaved like children and they, they disrupt the event. All right. But hey, you know, it was still only a sixth of the student body that did this. I'm sure the other five, six thought it was terrible. Well, then there was a petition um, that uh, some activists organized condemning the police presence at the protest because apparently that put uh, like black trans lives in danger 
I'm not, I'm not making this up. You can read it online. This is actually what they said. Um, and also condemning the Federalist Society for hosting the event, which undermined the values of equity and inclusion, blah, blah, blah. And the thing that's scary is that almost two-thirds of Yale Law School's student body signed this letter. Now, the, the mitigating factor here is that a lot of them were pressured to sign it of course. because in group me messages and emails, which you can see, students were saying that if you didn't sign the letter, that was not a neutral stance and you were complicit in the platforming and legitimizing of a hate group. Um, and before the event even activists distributed flyers in the room that said the panel you are about to attend features like a hate group by attending this panel you are complicit in legitimizing blah 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 so so basically everyone was told if you don't sign this you yourself have played some kind of causal role in like the basically the sterilization of trans people and like you know the and like trans kids killing themselves and and you know gay people being jailed and all sorts of crazy things um so so that's what they were protesting they're protesting yeah. just the fact that 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 yeah. adf was even allowed on campus yes yes that they were even given a platform right. and so and so when when kids are being shamed in this way for simply not signing the letter, you know, a lot of them, I think, talk themselves into saying, okay, well, maybe the police presence was a little much, so we'll put our name on the letter. I, I There's already some kids who I think apparently have said, oh, well, we only signed the letter to protest this one narrow thing. We didn't necessarily agree with the whole thing because I think they it got a lot of attention and they realized how crazy it looked to have their names on this just utterly absurd document. Um but, you know, that should give you an idea of the climate at this law school that kids felt compelled to sign their name to an objectively just deranged denunciation of their peers and of the police for protecting panelists who, I mean, one of whom told me and, and said on the record that she, you know, did not feel safe exiting the building without the police, you know. Um, I mean, there clearly was some threat or, or, right. or feeling a rational feeling of 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 danger um so yeah and, that's like what the environment at yale law school is like it's insane and you talked yeah. to to katie stith who's the professor who i guess was was moderating that mm -hmm. event and so she told you she said law schools are in crisis the truth doesn't matter much the game is to signal one's virtue so she i mean she's outspoken at, at how her and she's the one who told the students grow up and again that's on yeah. video you can see that and, and so of, of course i loved it and, and of course they start acting like children when she says that so they just confirm yeah. what she's saying they, they yeah. just start yelling at her what kind of support has she gotten from the administration or, or what kind of support has, has, you know, the Fed you know, society or these people trying so to have these events? I, I don't know exactly. I will say a number of FedSoc people say they were told and seemed, and, and, you know, I, 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 I am inclined to believe this version of events say they were told that the Dean of Yale law school was the one who called the police. And I suspect that's because she was trying to maybe signal some degree of support for this professor. Although she also could have at any point gone out and just told the kids, hey, shut the fuck up. Right. And she didn't. Um, so, you know, I don't, 
it's a little unclear. I mean, clearly the the administration, I think they did, there was some email I think sent around where Gherkin said, you know, we're going to talk to kids about our free speech policies or something. So there's some acknowledgement that like something went awry here, although it was pretty understated, I yeah. think. Uh, but yeah, you know, I, I like, I mean, it's good that the, the administration hasn't actively, I guess, I mean, they certainly haven't gone after this professor, but yeah, I don't know if they've, I mean, to me, a, a satisfactory degree of support would mean, um, among other things, that the kids, there were, ideally, they would have sent out an email denouncing the protest and saying this was inappropriate and violated our free speech policies. Ideally, they'd initiate disciplinary proceedings against some of the kids. I mean, it's on video, so like the law school can totally identify who at least a few of these kids are. Um, that's not hard. I mean, they could totally do that. Um, so unless unless the kids are disciplined, I mean, and and they claim, oh, they they complied with Yale's free speech policy after being given one warning. I mean, that's bullshit. They right. really were given more like two warnings and then made sounds in the hallway for like more than ten minutes. But like there were ten minutes where it's just like almost impossible to hear. I mean, so you know, at this point, like they 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 have a strong case according to the letter of their own free speech policies for disciplining the kids. So we'll see if that happens. I'm not optimistic. Yeah, um, right, because right, you, you see these isolated people coming out and saying something. I mean, there was a federal judge who said, hey, yeah. we should really get these kids' names and, and consider whether they should be able to do a judicial clerkship, which is like, that's the prestigious job that a lot of these kids yeah. want to do right after law school is a clerkship. But uh, again, it's, it seems very isolated. It's not like there, there's not some unified message saying this is just unacceptable this is antithetical to the american legal system why is it when so many and you you write about this even as it as it happens in law firms that these law firm partners they they assume that these younger associates are are liberals just like them you know liberals from from previous mm. decades who just who believe in the ideas of, of equality and and freedom and and all, all the, the traditional ideas we we associate with the american legal system and they realize oh no these these people just want to burn everything down. Why, once once you see that this is happening and these are the ideas that these younger people are coming up with, why isn't there a more unified front saying, oh, no, 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 you, you have this wrong. This is not how we operate. Well, I mean, I, as you just said, some of it is that there's this ingrained assumption that is only just starting to maybe be challenged at the periphery that these kids are just, oh, maybe they get a little up in arms, but they're basically just liberals, you know, rather than that they have an ideology totally antithetical to the, the foundations of the American legal order. Um, that's part of it. But I, you know, I, I also think, look, um, as this stuff has slowly entered law firms, I mean, you know, a, a, like an, a federal judge can kind of say what he wants. You know, they have tenure. Um, they're not going to get, they, you can't really cancel a federal judge for, for you know, insulting Yale law kids. But, um, you know, if you're, even if you're a partner, I mean, for one, you just don't want to deal with like a staff, internal staff revolt. So for example, um, I talk about this in my piece. Uh, there was this incident where David Boyce, who's a very liberal lawyer, got protested at his law firm um, for uh, his his representation of Harvey Weinstein. Um, and a lot of lawyers told me that, at, you know, in, in less dramatic fashion, 
any time sort of a case or client gets taken who who is seen as as outside of the, the bounds of of the orthodoxy, you know, you get pushback um, from people within the firm. So part of this is just you don't want to deal with that. And you know, you're running a business, you need like people to do the work, right? And if lawyers are like, I can't work for this person, you know, on this case because it offends my conscience, you know, it, that stuff like that always happened. And if it was isolated, it wasn't really a big deal. Like no one, you know, look, like if you say, for example, you know, if you had like experienced sexual assault and like the firm did a case pro bono case for someone who, you know, was accused of sexual assault and like a young woman said, hey, I really don't feel comfortable being on this case. It's like, okay, you know, that's not a big deal. We understand. I mean, no, no, one, no one's going to begrudge you for that. But now it's like, oh, Catholic hospital system or, you know, group that's faintly pro-gun rights. Oh, I can't do that because that's evil and, and you know, sexist and racist. Um, so... Yeah, you know, just if you want to avoid those kinds of, of controversies, you're going to stay away. The other thing that's going on, and I think this is maybe even a bigger factor and something that people don't realize, is clients will protest the law firms they're retaining if the law firms take on other clients that are perceived as being unwoke. So like, you know, Facebook, Coca-Cola, your big corporate clients, these all have their own kind of internal HR fifth columns who are really woke and employees will protest anything. Um, and so if Facebook retains the services of a firm that is simultaneously say, I, this, I don't know if this is happening, but just hypo hypothetically say was, you know, weighing in on the side of the plaintiffs in the Harvard affirmative action case, Facebook's employees might be like, hey, Facebook, what the hell are you doing giving business to this firm that is helping to unravel affirmative action, you horrible racists, you know? And so then Facebook, because they don't want to, you know, that Facebook might say, hey, guys, you know, can you maybe... We, we don't want to have to drop you, but like we might have to if you keep representing the Harvard, the, the, the Harvard plaintiffs. Um, and so then the law firm is kind of like, well, we don't want to lose Facebook's business. So it, it creates like a incentive for law firms to just avoid controversy. Um, and because now controversy can be triggered by like anything, because <laughs> woke ideology is so hypersensitive, it means that like there really is just more of a business incentive to avoid controversy, I think, than there used to be um, because people just react differently in corporations and that has downstream effects on, on the firm. So all of those forces, I mean, it's not so easy to just stick to your guns and say, no, we're going to represent so-and-so. Like, I, I mean, I'm sure that on the margins, you know, if people were more courageous, um, and had you know and and took an attitude more like this professor at Yale Law it, that would help but you know it, it I, I don't like it when people say this stuff is all just about cowardice like well you know it's not really about cowardice it's like rational fear that that's a rational response to to incentives right. that are really very deeply ingrained now in just the the system and in the structure of the legal profession um and that's not even to get into the possibility of, say, frivolous ethics complaints that could be filed against you, like which which happens too, um, with like bar associations. So, you know, there are all these like concrete coercive mechanisms in place that really do make it hard to stand up to the craziness in the legal system, um, and. 
that makes this a kind of tough problem to solve. Um, yeah, you know, I, I was going to ask yeah. you that if you have any, because I, I agree 100% with you. I, I think cowardice plays a big role in it, but you can't expect every person to be brave. There, there, there is an incentive structure and that's 90% of people are just going to follow the incentive structure. I mean, that's just human nature, 95%. Yeah. And, and so that's my question is to you, you know, being able to see this so up close and personal, how do you shift? Do you have any ideas on how you shift that incentive structure? Well, I mean, it's really, a, it's going to have to be like a whole of society process because everything is so intertwined, you know, like, for example, the thing with the the clients protesting, you know, law firms for taking on controversial representations that, you know, that the only way to really solve that problem is to make just corporations in the business world less ideological and less woke. And once this, these sort of woke activist constituencies are institutionalized in law firms, I mean, in, in corporations, that's, that's tough to do. I mean, part of the answer, I think, has to do with the way that sort of government incentives work related to lawsuits in particular, you know, the way civil rights law works now, you, you really are, you really face huge penalties for failing to police alleged insensitivity of any kind, even if it's pretty minor. Um, and you don't really face those penalties for violating the free speech, you know, free right. speech of your employees willy nilly. Um, and so I think a big part of this at the macro level is just there's an imbalance of incentives and ultimately Congress and federal agencies need to take a hard look at these incentives and try to fix them. And, and I don't mean I'm, you know, I'm not saying like you know, I, we're not going to repeal the Civil Rights Act, and I don't think we should do that for a lot of reasons, not least of which is that it can also be a good tool actually for um, potentially correcting some of the crazy excesses of the stuff, especially in schools. Um, but, you know, uh, here's just a concrete thing. I learned about this just the other week. You know, it used to be that in civil rights cases, you, the way it worked was that you could you could get the court to order like a company to stop discriminating, but you couldn't actually sue for like emotional damages. And like, like that wasn't something you could do under the 64 act, but under the 91 civil rights act, you could. And then, and that was combined with these very strong retaliation protections um, that meant that firms you know, you really like couldn't dismiss a complaint as super frivolous because then you'd be accused of retaliating against the employee potentially. Right. Um, and so, and and the EEOC has to like hear any complaint. So, so what you have now is a system where there's big financial penalties for if you don't police the hypersensitivity. You have employees who are just increasingly sensitive to any little thing. Um, you know, like a microaggression, right, can can trigger a claim. So so if that can trigger a claim, you know, God forbid you do something really controversial, like, you know, oppose affirmative action, right? Um, so all of these incentives kind of snowball, and, and it just, I think, makes it very hard to push back against this stuff. Um, and ideally, Congress and... Uh, you know, to the extent, say, the Office of Civil Rights or the Department of Education could could change some of this on its own, right? Ideally, you would just 
um, either either set up kind of countervailing incentives where you where you impose more penalties for sort of violating free speech rights, kind of you know, um, and fight bureaucratic fire with bureaucratic fire, or you know, you try to rewrite the laws in a way where it's just the, it, we have a clearer and more restricted definition of discrimination and, you know, uh, you just make it harder for these harassment claims to really work. And I mean, I know that would be controversial, but I think that if you, once you see it as a matter of incentives, it's hard to see how you could change the incentives without doing something like that. Right. I mean, I think it can, I think it can be done in a moderate, prudent way that is not just like, you know, upending like lots of protections that are really valuable, but it, you know, you would need to start tinkering with some of the, the civil rights jurisprudence and bureaucratic architecture that we've right. taken for granted. And that would obviously be controversial. You know, the other thing too, is that like the American Bar Association, in law schools, I mean, you know, frankly, the kids coming into law schools are already woke, right? Because this stuff begins on college campuses. But to the extent the ABA is like legitimizing and perpetuating it, um, you know, like what what they do is they they've now basically mandated that all law schools do like anti racism training, and and, and um, the reason that a lot of law schools, including Georgetown and Cardoza Law and Boston College Law and UC Irvine Law and University of Santa Clara Law, the reason these are all doing what are basically like mandatory critical race theory classes is that um, the American Bar Association has said, has released these new accreditation standards that to be accredited, you have to do some kind of education on racism. Um, and look, like, the Department of Education doesn't have to recognize the ABA as a legitimate accreditor for law schools, because if they they could just revoke that recognition tomorrow and then law schools wouldn't be eligible for federal funds. And they don't even have to do that. Like all really that would have to happen. is like President DeSantis's Department of Education just says, hey, guys, this is getting ridiculous. Uh, you got to ease up on the woke stuff or we're going to start, you know, considering whether we want to remove you, you know, right. remove your recognition as an accreditor that, you know, and then law schools won't be able to get federal funds and the value of your accreditation will disappear overnight. You know, I just, I mean, there are ways that you could, you could put pressure on them to stop being crazy. Which, which um, seems like that's, I mean, it, it almost has to come to that because I think that, you know, the people pushing back against this inherently just, they want to be able to use logic and reason and, and rational arguments to to talk about how crazy this woke stuff is but the people who are pushing that stuff don't respond they don't believe that that's the way that you not. you yeah. attack these issues so it, you almost have to fight fire with fire yeah, right? and if yeah. you're going to you, use yeah. use the pressure of of the state to impose this stuff then we're going to have to do the same thing to and, to remove and it. i and i and i think too the other the other thing to see here is it's not accreditation like it is already a public thing right because it governs what federal funds what taxpayer dollars you're eligible for and it's already and it's already sort of a political question what should the department of education choose to recognize as a legitimate accreditor um who has the capacity to legitimize schools for receiving federal funds that is a political question so 
it's not, people will say, well, this is politicizing education. It's already political. So it, I, I don't think it should be seen as like an intrusion into the autonomy of law schools or accreditation agencies for the state to say, hey, we're concerned that you guys are using your accreditation, your government recognized status as an accreditor to foist ideology onto law schools, right? Because they only exist as a government recognized creditor at, at the behest of the government, right? So it's, it's already a public question. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think this would be, A, the, the uh, attacking it through the accrediting bodies would, I think, be more effective than some of the other things that have been proposed. But B, it, it, it's just a hard thing to argue against, right? right. It's like, it, it's, it's, it's incoherent to really oppose political intervention in an already essentially political body which is what the ABA is. So again, it, it's hard to use that, that logical argument because again, I, you would think it's, it's not crazy to say that yeah. you know, public school teachers shouldn't be teaching second graders about sexual identity, but that becomes the right. don't say gay bill. You know? it, so it, it's almost like you, yeah. again, you can't yeah. use a, a rational argument. Well, and, and, and obviously, and obviously you know, you, you, there is a, I mean, the, the, they say the ABA is sort of an independent accreditor in the sense that like the government sort of recognizes it, but then like lets them kind of do what they want. They, they run themselves, you know, for the most part, law is a kind of self-credentialing profession. But the, th the thing to see is that all there is a point eventually where the government chooses whether to regard the self-credentialing as legitimate. And it seems reasonable if the kind of, you know, self, credentialing starts to result in insanity that is not in the public's best interest that the a government accountable to the public would say wait a minute you know hold on um there obviously are limits to the independence of these accreditors that we already sort of recognize and so it's not it, it there's nothing nothing like orwellian or totalitarian about just flexing those limits that have already been sort of like democratically legitimated. Do you see the the policy argument being the same as the social argument? Because to me, it seems like the, the, there's some there's things happening on the policy side and then there's things happening on the social side that are both going in the same direction. So, you know, you write about how people are afraid of, of social death. They're, they don't want to speak out because they're afraid that their friends yeah. and their classmates just are going to reject them. And uh, things that are happening, you, you, you had this story about how uh, Northwestern Law School, again, one of the top law schools in the country, they had invited uh, Josh Hammer, who's a conservative writer, a former lawyer, to come speak. And there was a listserv going on. Uh -huh. where, where, and and I, I assume the listserv wasn't anonymous. I assume it was just it was their email. So you could see who was writing what. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it wasn't anonymous. And the... I mean, the insults, I'm not offended by insults, but I'm offended by the, the juvenile nature of the insults. I mean, it, this looked like 12-year-olds writing on Reddit, the kind of yeah. stuff they were saying. Well, and, and, and what's ironic is that what they were saying almost certainly violated the school's own anti-sexual harassment policies. Because right. one of them basically said what could what could plausibly, at least plausibly under current Title IX jurisprudence, be construed as like a rape threat. Right. You know, it's like maybe Josh Hammer just needs to be fucked in the ass. Right. Pardon my French. I mean, and maybe the, the FedSoc board is like having this own psychosexual dilemma. I mean, it, you could totally read that. I mean, I mean, if a, if a, if FedSoc had said something equivalent about a like gay student. Right. Or, or even a woman. 
They'd be instant off expulsion. Campus. Yeah. We all know that they'd be kicked off campus, right? Yeah. And and they would they would cite the school's anti-harassment policies. But this, oh well, you know, they, they just didn't do anything. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting because on the one hand, yes, it's it's there's a kind of broader social sanction that happens that's the over and above the the uh official administrative sanction and that's itself a very powerful incentive and yes i think that's that's there's a lot of inertia there it's hard to change granted though i do think that that social sanction i, I have a friend who kind of describes it's like a coral reef where like the law and the kind of administrative incentives sort of create the like architecture and the kind of bare-bones skeletons of the reef, but then things organically grow around that and social media contributes and organic cultural change contributes, even if sort of the, the concrete incentives are what holds it all together. So, you know, I do think that if, um, for example, if, you know, there weren't these unaccountable offices dedicated to policing, you know, alleged racial and sexual harassment, you know, no matter how frivolous the claim is, I think in the long run, that would maybe change students' behavior because I think part of why students behave this way is they know that there is this administrative apparatus that that is both legitimizing their complaints and also gives them a mechanism to to enforce the to 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 make the kind of social sanction a disciplinary sanction. And th there was another case actually at Yale Law School that, that illustrated this very well, um, in which a student sent an email inviting kids to his trap house, pretty innocuous thing. And then the school gets nine discrimination and harassment complaints in 12 hours about it. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously part of the, the punishment for the kid is just his kid, his peers are all saying he's racist for using this innocuous term. But then, you know, their immediate impulse is to try to get him in trouble with the school's administrators. And then the administrators haul him in for a meeting and end up sending out an email that like condemns him. And so like, you know, one does wonder whether these witch hunts would happen with the same fervor if administrators were better about just ignoring them or even, I think and this is what they frankly should do, is be even more proactive and just say, guys, like, this is ridiculous. Shut up and go to class, right? You know, I mean, that's really what the response should be. And, and I do think that if that were the response and they got that response enough, it, there'd still be the social, pile, social media pylons, but I think they'd be a little less frequent. And I think people might be a little less concerned about them because there'd be a sense that the administration has their back. And that, and that might also embolden other students, right, to speak up and say, hey, guys, like, shut up. You're being stupid. Right. Um, so, yeah, I don't, I don't mean to kind of tell a monocausal story in which it's just, you know, that, like, the civil rights bureaucracy creates these incentives that then translate into what the administration does. And that totally determines how students behave. It's obviously more complicated, but I do think that that is a big part of the story. And that is at least something that is in principle controllable or, or, or something we can affect. Whereas like absent a ban on social media, and like a total, like, unless we just say, 
Discord, Facebook, GroupMe, all these things, email, law school live listeners, unless we all just say you can't do those. Right. You know, there, there's some amount of just the, the, the technological architecture for these pylons and, and for social shaming is kind of just there. And there's not a whole lot we can do about that. And, you know, culture is sticky. It takes time to change. Like you can't just, you know, tell the kids to grow up and have them do it overnight. I mean, I think, I think changing the kind of legal and bureaucratic incentives, while not easy, is at least something that it's possible. And it's within the realm of human agency in a way that I think some of these broader cultural and technological forces at this point really aren't. Did you see this firsthand when you were at Yale? You went to Yale undergrad and and we were talking before we started recording. I'm a few years older than you. And I think when I was in school, like it was, we were just starting to see some of this Mm -hmm. stuff, but Part of it was my personality. I liked being one person versus 60 people debating in class. I even had a professor yeah. who, who said to me once, like, I'm, I'm glad you're willing to speak up because that makes it more interesting when we have these discussions. Yes, but yes. Even back then, I'm sure there were still people in my class who who were afraid to speak up because they didn't want to be that one versus 60. Mm-hmm. So I, w- w- did, was it like yes. that for you? Or was it worse? Well, yeah. So, so I, was, I, I was at Yale 2014 to 2018. And in 2015, I was the opinion editor of the Yale Daily News. And that was the same year that this whole brouhaha over Halloween costumes, cultural appropriation, and Yale being racist, allegedly against Black people. Apparently, Yale is systemically racist. That's what everyone said. Um, That was when this all blew up, kind of, and made national news. Uh, And I saw it up close because I was... Well, A, I lived across the street from the residential college in which there was this big confrontation where all these students encircled... um, the, the the then master of Silliman College, Nicholas Christakis, and accused him of being racist, um, basically because he had refused to denounce his wife's perfectly anodyne email telling kids that they should talk to each other if they're offended by something. That was literally it. I mean, yeah. um, and, you know, I had to like field and edit all the op-eds for the school paper about this controversy. So I, you know, I remember vividly having to edit a girl who who wrote that demands for rational discourse were a way to police the emotion and lived experience of students of color, just all sorts of nonsense. Um, and yeah, that was like really a turning point because I remember my freshman year, there was this woke stuff, but I think a lot of people laughed it off and It was very much seen as like, okay, there's this group of activists who are insane and get offended by everything, but whatever. But then when this protest became so huge, it was like a turning point on the campus where suddenly everyone really, and because the administration basically was like, oh, we're so sorry that we've caused so much harm and pain to all of our Black students. Like once the administration sort of weighed in and just legitimized it all, Immediately, there was kind of a chill in the air where people were very afraid to say what they thought um, because they knew they would be piled on and they knew that effectively the administration had said it supported the pile on. I mean, they didn't they didn't fire the professors or whatever, but they didn't they also didn't condemn any of the behavior that was really pretty insane um, that was directed towards Christakis and and others. Um, And so. Yeah, like it really, I, I mean, I know I had conversations with people where it was, they, they said, you know, I don't recognize campus. That's just a totally different environment from what it was a year or two ago. Yeah. Um, and I think that's probably, it, it's, I mean, 
I think it maybe cooled off a bit, right? Passions were running very high, much much as how George Floyd kind of, you know, there was like a few months where just you could not say anything. And then there was a little more maybe organized pushback once, once it receded a bit. But still, you know, it, it had a pretty enduring change, I think, in the culture of campus. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, yeah. Uh, seeing that up close too made me realize, yeah, like these people cannot be reasoned with. Right. Um, and the, and the only way, I mean, and so unless you're willing to just dismiss their accusations of racism as childish, which most people aren't willing to do, um, you know, they're just going to take over every right. institution. And sure enough, that is what <laughs> and, happened. <laughs> and I know we're almost out of time, but I had to ask you quickly because you, you broke some news to me about how, how all this is actually affecting the actual judicial system. There's a movement now to end peremptory strikes, which I hadn't heard until I read your article. So mm-hmm. for people who don't know, if, if you're a lawyer getting ready for trial, a jury trial, you're selecting your jury pool, the lawyers on both sides can eliminate a certain number of jurors who they think might be biased against their client, against their side. And mm-hmm. the whole idea is to make sure that you have a jury that's going to rule fairly. But there's a movement now saying that the peremptory strike is discriminatory, which which I, by definition it is because you're discriminating against potential jurors who you think won't be fair. But can you explain what's going on as, as far as that goes? Yeah, so basically preemptory strikes uh, are disproportionately used to exclude uh, potential Black jurors. Um, and this has been going on for a while. There are, there is a, a Supreme Court case that basically ruled that you can't exclude someone simply on the basis of race, but because it's pretty easy to come up with facially race-neutral explanations for why you're striking someone, uh, in practice, you still do see racial disparities. And some of those may well be due to racism of some kind. It's like perfectly possible. And there have been a few cases where it has really seemed like they were just trying to strike all the black jurors, you know, um, for various reasons. The thing is, though, preemptory strikes would also let a defense attorney strike white jurors who seemed racist, right? They And they would also let you strike maybe a black juror who, because they had experienced a really nasty crime in their own life, seemed likely to be maybe perhaps sort of unduly tough on um, someone accused of a crime, right? And so there's a lot of reasons why you might see these disparate impact patterns, right? That are not, you know, and 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 why you maybe wouldn't want to get rid of preemptory strikes. Uh, but now, just because they have a racially disparate impact, uh, the Arizona Supreme Court, I think, got rid of them altogether, um, and other places are considering the same thing. I should mention that. There are intellectual arguments for getting rid of these that don't necessarily involve the race thing. And there are actually some conservatives who are against preemptory strikes um, for various ideological reasons. And and if you got rid of them but made it easier to do what's called a four-cause challenge, right, where you have to really, uh, you know, get the judge to agree that the juror can't be fair. And then the judge, you know, says, yes, okay, I'm going to dismiss them. If if the norms around that change, that it was a little easier to do those, because right right now, the way it works is that if the juror says, oh, I can be fair, 
usually the judges is just like, sorry, you're out of luck. You can't do a four cause strike and you'd have to do a peremptory. You can imagine the norms changing where the judges just became more active and determinate and, and were more, you know, solicitous and willing to sort of hear these four cause challenges and let them go through. That might, you know, if 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 that that norm changed, then maybe getting rid of peremptories wouldn't be the end of the world, right? I, you know, we shouldn't exaggerate. But the point I would just make is that wherever you fall on this, it's an example of you know, activists kind of intellectual concerns about disparate impact and discrimination leading to very concrete changes in the legal system, which will potentially determine who sits on juries and will, and that will potentially determine the outcome of cases. Um, So anyone who wants to say this stuff is just abstract and hypothetical. It doesn't matter. Okay, maybe the kids are being really censorious and it might affect free speech at law schools, but come on, you know, how big a deal is this really? Well, I mean, it, it is succeeding in changing the way the actual legal system works. And of course, a more quotidian and kind of, well, not quotidian, but a more sort of just straightforward example is, you know, if judges believe that neutrality is bad and perpetuates racism and then they just actively stop trying to be neutral i mean of course no judge is ever fully neutral but you know to to simply jettison that as an ambition right i mean that will affect probably how judges dish out sentences and how they rule and that will affect you know who's in jail and for how long and right and the outcomes of cases i mean so this is not the idea that this is all going to remain abstract and hypothetical, it's just, it just, it's both belied by common sense and by concrete empirical data right in front of us. You can already see judges basically saying that they don't believe in neutrality. Yep. You can already see changes in the legal system. Um, you know, you write about no they're, one, they're trying to change the definition yeah. of consent. They're changing the definition of self-defense. Yeah, yeah, and the definition of consent this is a good example where the, eventually the ABA shelved that proposal because a lot of people were like, hey, wait a minute, this is going to really undermine due process and and cause lots of problems, including potentially it could increase racial disparities in in prisons, right? Um, So that's, you know, that's a whole other thing where the pieties about sexual assault and and race collide. So it's totally believable that in the future, the ABA could in fact adopt a resolution urging state legislatures to uh, write affirmative consent to criminal law and that would mean that a whole bunch of conduct that is currently fine would suddenly be not fine, or at least would potentially generate, would could potentially get you thrown in jail, right? And and that could have a huge effect. Uh, I mean, it could increase racial disparities because it could lead to a lot more black people getting put in jail. Um, it could, you know, it could lead to all sorts of travels travesties of justice. Um, so you know. And look, state legislatures themselves often have gone to law schools and and are often part of the legal system. So you know, maybe in maybe in like Texas, this isn't such a big deal, but in in New York, which already actually passed a law that lowered the standard, the the burden of proof for sexual um, harassment claims, right? Ironically, lowered it to the point that Andrew Cuomo, who signed the bill under the new standards, he himself inaugurated probably would would go to jail right. under under these right. standards i mean i mean you know and so if you keep like lowering the standards right you know 
lot of conduct that's maybe borderline or even that a lot of people five years ago would have been like, oh, whatever, this is this is totally okay, you know, could now get you force you to pay damages or worse, right? right. Um, so it's, yeah, you know, it's not just hypothetical. It really will affect real people's lives. And and you mentioned self-defense. I mean, um, I don't know if they're really going to do this. This is all pretty hypothetical. It hasn't really coalesced into a concrete proposal like the ABA thing has, but on sexual assault. But like, there are these law professors now who are like, well, maybe it's too easy to claim self-defense. We should make it harder. And, and change standards about who's the presumptive aggressor in a in a self-defense case. But, you know, if you do that, well, and you try to reverse engineer the standards so that someone like Kyle Rittenhouse would go to jail, um, what happens when a Black guy who is pursued by people who are calling him the N-word and, and making threats turns around and fires his gun uh, and kills one of them, right? That actually happened, and he was acquitted on all counts. They said he had a reasonable belief he was an imminent threat of harm, and so even though the people saying, I'm going to kill you, N-word, didn't actually pull out a gun or do anything physically threatening, they were like, yeah, you know, it was reasonable for him to be scared and to shoot one of them. Um, and I would say I probably agree, given what, what you read about the case, that that was a reasonable thing for him to think. Um, if you change the standard to try to get someone like Kyle Rittenhouse put in jail, there's a real chance that you could end up making it harder for someone like that to claim self-defense. And then that guy might go to jail, you know, for using a lawfully purchased firearm in the face of a racist mob to defend himself. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, the reality is that our current system where, where it's hard to convict someone, you know, innocent until proven guilty, due process, all this, it it is not perfect. There are going to be cases where someone who seems like kind of an asshole gets off. There are going to be cases where someone who maybe really did something wrong gets off. But the question is, what's the alternative? And often the alternative is even worse. Right. Uh, and I, I, among the many problems with this kind of ideology, it is, it is very, it basically makes it verboten to even bring up trade-offs. And if you can't talk about the trade-offs, it's going to be hard, I think, to, to you know, it's going to, you're going to get more of these laws that maybe have unintended consequences. And we're going to be like, oh, wait, maybe we shouldn't have done that, but you know, it's going to be too late because there's going to be people who are in jail and have had years of their lives irreparably stolen from them. Right. You know, Aaron, I could talk about this with you all day, but I want to respect your time. I, again, like I said, this is such an underreported aspect of what's going on in, in our society and culture at large. So I'm so grateful that you're out there doing this. Is there anything you're working on now that you're particularly excited to, to publish? Um, I've got a lot of pieces in the pipeline. Uh, you know, the, the, the Barry Weiss pieces you can imagine took a long time. So I'm yeah. a little behind on stuff, sure. but I have, um, I have a lot of things about different institutions that are likewise buckling under the weight of this ideology. I mean, one thing I've written a fair bit about and will write more about in the coming months is, um, woke medicine and the, the push to, to, uh, institutionalize explicit racial preferences for medical care and, you know, it's a hospital system. I don't even want to read about that. I, uh, that frightens me. Uh, it's pretty scary. And, you yeah. know, this is where, and just uh, the thing I'll leave your readers with, or your listeners to, this is kind of an om ominous note, but, you know, a lot of the, the 
these more extreme kind of racial preferences in medicine have been challenged legally. But, you know, what happens when law firms are afraid that they'll lose clients if they challenge this stuff, right? right. What happens when just the elite consensus changes? Uh, you are going to have what may be unconstitutional racial preferences that affect who lives and who dies, you know, from COVID-19. Uh, just those are going to be state governments will go ahead and do those. And there may not be routine legal challenges to them. And eventually those things may even become legal. Um, the law might change. Uh, so if that scares you, well, that's in the process of happening. So, so wake up and don't be yeah. complacent. <laughs> Aaron, again, appreciate your time. I'll link to the Barry Weiss article. I'll link to your work at the Washington Free Beacon. Anywhere else you want people to follow you and your work? Uh, I'm at I'm at Aaron Severium on Twitter. Great. Awesome. Yep. Thanks again, Aaron. Have a good one. All righty. You too.